Well, if we could, with the Lord's help and the Lord's enabling for a short while uh, this morning, we could turn back to that portion of Scripture that we read. Uh, the first portion, the book of Psalms and Psalm 40, uh, page 561 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 40, we're going to look at verses 1 to 10, but if we just take as our text the words of uh, verse 2 to 4. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the, the Lord his trust, who does, who does not turn aside to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Now, for many people, uh, Psalm 40 is a favourite psalm. It might even be your favourite psalm. And it would be very easy to understand why this psalm is your favourite psalm, because Psalm 40 is so personal, and it's so beautiful, because it describes the experience and the feelings and the emotions of every Christian. Psalm 40 is so personal because it describes so vividly what Jesus does for everyone who trusts in him. And we read there that he hears their cry. He takes them from uh, the fearful pit and he puts a new song in their mouth. That's what Jesus does for everyone who has that personal commitment towards him. And there have been many suggestions as to where and when and why uh, David wrote this psalm. But the truth is, we just don't know. But you know, I don't think it's relevant for us to know where, when, or why this personal psalm was written. We just ought to be thankful that it was written. And that it was written with such honesty and with such clarity that we can relate to it in our own experience. But you know, the wonderful thing about Psalm 40 is that it's not only personal to you and to your experience. It's a psalm which is also personal to Jesus and to his experience. Because Psalm 40 is the psalm of the incarnation. And the word incarnation, it literally means the enfleshment of God. When the Son of God became man by taking to himself our nature. It was the incarnation, the enfleshment of God. And it's good for us to think about uh, the incarnation at this time of year. Uh, there's a lot trying to take our mind away from the incarnation. But it's good for us to focus upon it. And because Psalm 40 is uh, the psalm of the incarnation, Psalm 40 is also a messianic psalm. And what we mean by a messianic psalm is that it's a psalm which speaks about the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And of course, all the psalms, they speak about Jesus. Or they direct us to praise Jesus. But not all of the psalms are messianic. But Psalm 40 is a messianic psalm because it directs our attention towards the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But you know, how can we recognize a messianic psalm? How can uh, we recognize Jesus in a psalm? And it's, well, we can recognize a messianic psalm if there is a reference to the Messiah in a psalm and it's quoted and explained and applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And that's what we see here in verses 6 to 8. 
These words, they can't be applied to David, they can't be applied to us, but they're applied to the Messiah and they're explained in the New Testament in what we were reading in Hebrews chapter 10. And, and you know, that's what we were reading earlier, where, where God said that he was preparing a body for Jesus, a body of sacrifice when he came into the world. And so Psalm 40, it's not only personal to you and to me and to our experience, but it's also personal to Jesus. It's not only our testimony, but it's also the testimony of Jesus. And that's what I'd like us to consider from the opening ten verses of this psalm, this messianic psalm. I'd like us to consider three testimonies. The Christian's testimony, the Christ's testimony, and the church's testimony. So there are the three testimonies in verses 1 to 10. The Christian's testimony, the Christ's testimony, and the church's testimony. So we look first of all at the Christian's testimony. Look at verse 1. Where David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who, do, who does not turn aside, turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And so David's testimony, it's the Christian's testimony. And David begins his testimony by presenting to us this vivid image, as he says in verse 2, of being stuck in a slimy pit, bogged down in mud and mire. And you know, we can easily relate to David's imagery because, well, we live right beside a moor. We're surrounded by peat. And I'm sure that most of us, if not all of us, we have spent a day out in the moor cutting peats or lifting them or taking them home. And every time I read those words, I always go back to my childhood when we were all out in the peats. And back then, as you know, it was a big family affair. You were all there with your family and all your cousins and your aunties and your uncles. Everyone was there. Everyone was there to, to help loading the trailer full of peats. But once the trailer was full and uh, the tractor was heading back with a load, we would all have to stay out in the moor. And you'd have to wait for the next tractor to come with the empty trailer. But you know, children being children, we often got fed up very quickly. And so we would walk to the wettest and the dirtiest and boggiest part of the moor to see if we could get our welly stuck. And at first, well, we attempted all the shallow areas and we got through them quite easily. But then, well, with every bog that we got through, got through safely, we would become more and more bold. We would become confident and every bog would take us further and further away from our parents. And then we, when we were out of the watchful eye of our parents, we would, well, we'd go down to the really boggy parts. And one by one, we'd all try and get through a bog. But sure enough, there was always one who got stuck. And when I got stuck, I would try and, and move forward, but I couldn't move forward. I'd try and go back, but I couldn't go back. And the more I struggled, the more I sank. I was completely stuck. I was bogged down and going nowhere. And the only option was to cry for help. And when I cried for help, as you'd expect, help would come, be pulled out of the bog, the wellies would be dragged out with them, and you'd be placed on the hard peat road and cleaned up. And you know, that's the vivid imagery which David is using here. Because when we are without Christ, 
we try and get away from his watchful eye. And we try new things and we live our own lives and we go our own way and we do our own thing. But the reality is that with every succeeding bog that we get through, we try a deeper one. And of course we think that, well, everything will be fine. We don't see that what we're doing is endangering ourselves and even our own soul. We don't worry about what we put our husband through or what we put our wife through or even what we put our parents through. We never think about the consequences of our actions because we're just living for the moment. We're living for the world. We're living for pleasure. We're living for ourselves. And like the prodigal son, we live like that until we come to the end of ourselves. And we see, when we see the mess that we're in and the pit that we've, we've now sunk into and that we've sunk so low that we can't go forwards, we can't go backwards, the only option is to cry for help. That's all we can do. The only option we have is to cry to the Lord for help. Because our only hope is to seek the Lord with all our heart. Our only hope is to ask the Lord to, to rescue us from the fearful pit that we find ourselves in. And that was David's testimony. And it's the testimony of every Christian. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. David is saying there, when he says, I waited, he's saying that his only hope was. His only hope of rescue was the Lord. He had tried every other avenue in life to find satisfaction and happiness. But none of them ever filled that void and that emptiness in his heart and in his life. None of them ever brought that true, lasting happiness which grace alone can give. And David says, my hope was that the Lord would bow down his ear to me. My hope was that he would rescue me from this bog of destruction that I found myself in. But you know, his hope, it wasn't a hope of doubt. Thinking that the Lord might hear him when he cries to him. And the Lord might save him when he cried to him. No, his hope is a hope of certainty. David knew that when he cried out to the Lord, the Lord would hear. The Lord would rescue. The Lord would save him. Because when our hope is in the Lord, we can have the assurance that the Lord will hear our cries. And the Lord will rescue us from the fearful pit. And that's what the Christian testifies. Verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog. And set my feet upon a rock. Making my steps secure. Do you know what's remarkable is that the pit of destruction. It's not only a, a pit of waste and mud. But it literally means a roaring pit. Because he says that this pit. He's saying that it has a voice like thunder and power like no other. The pit of destruction that David is describing, it's actually the grave. And what he's saying is that before he cried to the Lord, he was sinking deeper and deeper in sin. And the more he sank in sin, the closer and closer to death he came. Maybe not physical death, but certainly spiritual, eternal death. And you know, that's how the Bible describes someone who is not a Christian. That's how the Bible describes you if you're not a Christian. You're spiritually dead in the grave. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're walking according to the course of this world. 
to the fashions of the age. You're following the prince of the power of the air. You might not think it, but you are. And he is the devil, as Paul says. You might not realize it, but you are under the wrath of God. My friend, that's the testimony of someone who is not a Christian. That's your testimony if you're not in Christ today. You're in the grave with your sin. And you are hell bound along with Satan. But you know the wonder of the Christian's testimony. Which can be your testimony. The Christian's testimony. Is that when we cry to the Lord. The Lord pulls us up out of the pit of destruction. The Lord lifts us up out of the miry bog. And the Lord establishes our feet upon solid rock. My friend the Christian's testimony. Is that we weren't saved because of anything in us. But all according to God's grace towards us. And when we cried to the Lord for mercy. When we sought the Lord with all our heart. The Lord saved us. And that's what's emphasized in these verses. He heard me. He inclined my ear, his ear. He pulled me out of the pit. He lifted me out. He established my feet. He gave me a new song. He brought me from from death to life. He awakened my soul. He pulled me out of the grave. He gave me new life. He rescued me. He saved me. And he did it all when I cried out to him for mercy. He did it all when I cried out to him for mercy. And you know, when David gives his testimony, when he gives the Christian's testimony, he then urges everyone to have the same testimony. He says in verse 5, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them. Tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. David says, the Christian is blessed. And everyone who trusts in the Lord is blessed. And they're blessed, he says, because they're not like the unconverted. The unconverted who are too proud to turn to the Lord and cry to him for mercy. They're not like the unconverted that are consumed with the world. And as he says himself, going astray, chasing after a lie. He says the Christian, they're blessed. The Christian is blessed. And their testimony is that the Lord's gracious thoughts and deeds towards them. They are too many to number. Too many to number. Oh my unconverted friend, will you not make the Christian's testimony? Your testimony. Will you not make this personal testimony. Your personal testimony. That he saved me. And you know if this is your personal testimony. Then you must testify to what the Lord has done in your life. You can't keep it to yourself. You have to make it known. You have to tell others about it. That's what David says. I will proclaim and tell of them. These wondrous works that you've done. I'll tell of it. To other people. But as we said. This psalm is not only personal to the Christian. It's also personal to Jesus. Psalm 40 is not only the Christian's testimony. It's also the Christ's testimony. And that's what I'd like us to consider secondly. 
the Christ's testimony. Look at verse 6. It says there, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now we mentioned earlier that Psalm 40 is a messianic psalm because it speaks about the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And when we read these words, uh, which we've just read, verses 6 to 8, we know that David isn't speaking about his personal experience. But the beautiful thing is that David is speaking prophetically. He's speaking in prophecy about the personal experience of Jesus. And in particular, David is speaking about the incarnation. And so we need to understand and interpret these messianic verses. And we need to understand them using the New Testament. Because we can only understand and interpret words of a messianic psalm when it's explained and applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And that's why we read in Hebrews chapter 10. Now the letter to the Hebrews, that was written to Jewish Christians who were on the verge of of turning away from their Christianity because of persecution. But the letter to the Hebrews, it's a a wonderful letter. And it was written in order to remind these Jewish Christians that Jesus is better. And he's better than all the Old Testament types and shadows. And you know, as you read through the letter to the Hebrews, you go through all these chapters, these 13 chapters, and the writer repeatedly says, Jesus is better. He says he's better than the prophets, he's better than the angels, he's, he's better than Moses, he provides a better Sabbath rest, he's better than Aaron as a high priest, he provides a better covenant, he gives to us a better sanctuary for worship. And then you reach chapter 10 and the writer says that Jesus has provided a better sacrifice than all the blood of bulls and goats that were offered in the Old Testament. He says that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, was better than all the sacrifices and all the offerings that were given at the tabernacle and at the temple. He says that these were only types and shadows of what was to come. Yes, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, he says, but it was impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sin. The daily offerings of the priests at the tabernacle and at the temple They didn't take away sin. They didn't deal with the problem of sin. They didn't cover and expiate and propitiate the heinousness and the ugliness and the awfulness of our sin in the sight of a holy God. But the writer to the Hebrews says, when Christ came. When Christ came into the world, he said, quoting Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body You have prepared for me. Now the words a body you have prepared for me. They're not quoted here in Psalm 40. Because they're words of explanation. They're words that interpret and explain. What's being implied in Psalm 40. That Jesus is giving us his personal testimony. About the incarnation. Jesus is speaking here. Of why he's coming into the world. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. 
And what we have to see from these messianic words is that Jesus, God the Son, he is speaking here to God the Father. And Jesus is saying about his Father that the blood of bulls and of goats, it never really satisfied you. It never satisfied the Father for sin. Because sacrifices, they had to be given daily. Offerings had to be made continually, again and again. But he says they never achieved full atonement. They never accomplished a full redemption. And so Jesus is speaking. He's testifying through Psalm 40. And he's speaking about his personal experience. And he's saying, Father, a body. A body you have prepared for me. And you know, my friend, it's an amazing testimony. Because Jesus is testifying here that he became man. He was incarnated. A body was prepared for him. All so that he could be a sacrifice for our sin. All so that he could die in our place. My friend, the wonder and glory of the incarnation is that God, God became man in order to deal with our sin. He humbled himself. He became lower than the angels. He took to himself our nature and our likeness. God became man. Philippians 2 says that he made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. My friend, this is the wonder of the incarnation. The Son of God became a servant in order to be our sacrifice. The Son of God became a servant in order to be our sacrifice. And you know, this is what Jesus is testifying to us here. Because when he says in verse 6, you have given me an open ear. You have pierced my ears. And what Jesus means by this is that he took upon himself the role of the suffering servant. Because the piercing of the ear or the opening of the ear, it refers to the obedience of a slave. And in Exodus chapter 21, we're told that if a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with a sharp tool, and he shall be his slave Forever. And that's the imagery which is being used here in Psalm 40. Jesus is testifying to us that he is the obedient slave, he's the willing slave, he's the submissive slave, he's the sacrifice to atone for sin and satisfy God's justice. And as the suffering slave, he makes the confession of the slave I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. That's what the, Jesus is saying. The suffering servant. I love my father. I love my church. I love my people. I will not go out free. I have come not to be served. But to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. I have come that they may have life. 
and have it more abundantly. I have come that they might be redeemed, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with my precious blood. What a testimony. What a testimony. The suffering servant was willing to die on our behalf. But more than that, more than that, Jesus says in verse 7, Behold, behold, I have come, and in the scroll of the book it is written of me. It's written of me according to the scriptures. And that's what Paul said about Jesus, isn't it? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, he says. That's what we see in Isaiah 53. Christ died according to the scriptures. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes, we are healed. Christ was buried according to the scriptures. Isaiah 53 again, he made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Those words were 800 years before Jesus appeared. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. Christ was also raised, highly exalted, according to the scriptures. Psalm 16, 1000 B.C. You will not leave my soul in the grave. Neither will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. My friend, this is the Christ's testimony. It was written of me according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. And don't you just love reading about those two people who met Jesus on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24? They didn't recognize who Jesus was at first. But when Jesus opens up the scriptures, when he opens up the Bible, and we're told that beginning with Moses, right at the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And you know, it was only on reflection when Jesus had departed from them that they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us? As he walked with us on the way and while he opened up unto us the scriptures. That's the Christ's testimony. He's the suffering servant of whom the scriptures, the Bible speaks so clearly. But more than that, Jesus' testimony about his father was that in verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And you know, it should make us ask, how? Looking at the sacrifice, Jesus being a sacrifice for our sin, how was there delight in the Father's will? Where was the delight in doing the Father's will? And you know, when we come to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, he's been brought before his knees, before the cup of his father. And he's engaging in prayer and he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. His soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. And when we listen into those dark moments, we hear Jesus saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. To do thy will, I take delight. The cup that was assigned to Jesus was a cup that no one else could drink. And yet he drank it all until the last drop. Because it, as the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, it was the joy, it was the delight that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame. It was for the joy and the delight in seeing his own inheritance that Jesus was obedient. Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. To do thy will, I take delight. And as the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, it was by his own blood, Jesus entered once into the most holy place and obtained an eternal redemption for us. And when he entered, when he finished, he sat down. At the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's the beauty of it. The priests they offered sacrifices daily. They never sat. But when he offered himself. He sat down. Because it is finished. It is finished. And you know that's why Jesus says to us now in the gospel. Come to me. Come to me. It's all done for you. So just come to me. Come and see and your soul shall live. And you know, my friend, without the Christ's testimony, David and every Christian would never have the Christian's testimony. That's the beauty of it. But you know, there's one more testimony I'd like us to consider. The church's testimony. The church's testimony. Look at verse 9. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And you know, in these two verses, there are five statements which make known to others... God's work of salvation. And I want us to see that both Christ and the Christian, they are speaking in these two verses. Because this is the church's testimony. And the church has Christ as the head of the church, and the Christian is the body of the church. And as the head and the body, the church's testimony, it is to be the same. It's to be the same. I have told the glad news of deliverance. In the great congregation. Behold I have not restrained my lips as you know O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And so when Christ speaks through these words. He's reminding the church that her testimony is all about him. He's reminding the church that Christ is to be proclaimed. The church is to proclaim Christ and him crucified. He is to be elevated. He is to be exalted. He is to be worshipped and praised. He is to receive all the glory and all the honour. Because he and he alone is the one who speaks to his church. And you know that's what we need to remember. When the word of God is being read in church. 
Christ is speaking to us. When the Psalms are being sung in church, Christ is speaking to us. When the preacher is preaching in church, Christ is speaking to us. And my friend, Christ is speaking to us personally. That's what he says. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I've not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. <clears throat> but you know, the church's testimony is not only what, that Christ is speaking, but the Christian is also speaking. Because the Christian is not only testifying to the saving grace of God, the Christian is also confessing and professing as a church as to what Christ has done for them. That he took them from the fearful pit. That he gave to them a new song. That he established their feet upon solid rock. And it was all because Jesus Christ became man. He became the suffering servant. Who offered himself upon the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. And because this news is such good news. The testimony of the church. And the Christian. The Christian in the church. The testimony is, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I have not restrained my lips. I have not hidden your deliverance. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your love and your faithfulness from the congregation. That's the church's testimony. It's the proclamation of Christ and the Christian. We are telling others. Of what Jesus does. For sinners such as we are. And so Psalm 40. Beautiful Psalm. A favourite Psalm. It's the Psalm of the Incarnation. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the testimony of the Christian. The Christian's testimony. The Christ's testimony. And the church's testimony. That every Christian. Should proclaim what Jesus has done. But you know, all I want to say to you in closing is that if you love Psalm 40, and I know that many of you do, if you love Psalm 40, make this testimony your testimony today. Make it your testimony by crying out to the Lord for mercy. Make it your testimony that you could say, He took me from a fearful pit. From the miry clay and on a rock he set my feet. Establishing my way. Make that your testimony today. By crying out to the Lord for mercy. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord our gracious God. We give thanks to thee this morning for the great reminder in thy word. That Jesus is on every page. That he is there for us to find. And Lord we pray that we would have found him this morning. Not only in the pages of scripture. But that we might have found him as our saviour. That we too would be able to confess and testify like David. That he heard my cry. He took me from the fearful pit. He took me from the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock. He established my way. He put the new song in my mouth. Our God to magnify 
and that our desire now would be that many shall see it and that they too shall fear and that they too would rely upon the Lord. O Lord, bless us together, bind us together, keep us on mercy's ground until we find thee and that we, O Lord, would keep looking to Jesus, knowing him and loving him as the author and the finisher of our faith. Cleanse us, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <coughs> we shall conclude by singing the words of uh, that psalm, Psalm 40, page 260. We're singing from verse 8 down to the end of the double verse, Mark 10. <coughs> singing from verse 8, Psalm 40. To do thy will I take delight. O thou, my God that art, yea, that most holy law of thine I have within my heart. Within the congregation great I righteousness did preach. Lo, thou dost know, O Lord, that I refrained not my speech. Down to the end of the double verse, Mark 10, to God's praise. Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.